Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and today we have the pleasure of discussing the monetary policy outlook with somebody who's been in the hot seat himself. I'm glad to welcome Robert Kaplan, former president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, to the program today. He led the 11th District Bank from 2015 to 2021 and was early in warning about the dangers of excessive and prolonged monetary easing. Before joining the Fed, Rob is a professor of management and senior associate dean at Harvard Business School. And before that, he had a 23-year career at Goldman Sachs, including leading the investment banking division. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Pedro. Good to be with you. Let's start with the inflation outlook, since it's still the prevalent story in the economy and in monetary policy. Inflation's been coming down, but it's still significantly above target, especially at the core level, and that seems to be worrying policymakers. What are your thoughts on what is making price pressure so persistent at this point? It looks to me like we're making progress on inflation in the goods sector, but inflation in the service sector is still sticky. I think one of the reasons why inflation in, in services is sticky and will stay sticky for longer than people expect is the amount of fiscal spending that is going on throughout the United States. You know, it's interesting. These programs got passed and then there's a tendency just to forget about them because they're passed. Well, we're now getting down to projects being identified and announced. And I see it everywhere I go in the United States. First, the remaining ARPA money, American Rescue Act money, that was spent by the federal government, but is sitting right now at the state and local government level. Much of it has been committed to specific projects, but my sense is, a good chunk of it has not been spent. It has to be spent somewhere in the neighborhood by 25, has to be obligated by 24 and spent by 25. That was initially $350 billion to state and local governments. Some percentage of that has been spent, but I, my sense is a good chunk of it is not. There's a multiplier effect on those projects in that everywhere I go in the country when there's a project announced that has ARPA money, the project might be two or three times the ARPA money, but the ARPA money in effect is the equity or gives a haircut to the projects. So that's one. Second, the Inflation Reduction Act has embedded in it, along with it, the CHIPS Act, which was creating more semiconductor capacity in the United States. I think that's a good thing in the long run for the United States. It gives, it has a big loan fund and a bunch of tax credits for creating uh, battery storage plants in the United States uh, and improving a number of projects that help sustainability. In the long run, these are good projects, but they're happening now. So what's an example? And I'm not going to name any one state, not to pick on anyone. If a state announces a $4 billion battery manufacturing plant, that plant probably takes 15,000 construction jobs and then another 5,000 plan jobs. Number of those projects are just now being announced. Many of them won't even get done till 2025. So my point is, there's a, there's a bunch of stimulus projects going on. Much of the type you would normally identify with a post-recession stimulus plan. These are the kinds of things 
that met, create jobs and good jobs, you know, $35 an hour jobs. And so you like those as an economy, and I think we'll be better in the longer run. But in the short run, while you're fighting inflation and you got an unemployment rate that's well below 4%, many of these jobs are going to be filled by people who are not unemployed, but by people who are already employed somewhere else are going to trade out of a $22 an hour job for a $35 an hour job. And that's why I say back to the service sector, the impact of that is workers are struggling to make ends meet, but they're getting wage increases. They're just struggling to keep up. Uh, there's a big COLA adjustment to 70 million people who are on government programs. And what's happening is people have spending money. They're not spending it so much on goods, but they're spending it on food, uh, services, they're flying. And I don't know that I see that slowing down uh, because these projects have years to run. The ARPA project will eventually you know, reach a close and the money will have been spent in the next two or three years. But the other two programs have years to run. And so that's why I think for those who are thinking we're, we're on imminent, on the precipice of a severe downturn, it, yes, in the real estate sector, if you run a small or mid-sized regional bank, if you are a small business that is very dependent on bank loans, you are seeing weakness across the board. And it feels like you're in a recession. But I think for the overall economy, services are going to stay sticky. Um, and I think for better or worse, the Fed's going to have to think about how to handle that. That dovetails nicely into the next question, which is, how does that fiscal impetus affect the likely stickiness of inflation in the second half of the year and the prospect that the Fed might actually have to do more in terms of rate hikes? Of course, they kept rates steady at the last meeting, but they also revised up their forecast for the peak rate up to 5.6%. What is your expectation for the second half? So this is one of those situations where I was, in, I was strongly in favor of a pause to sort of assess these cross currents. Uh, and also, you've got the the Treasury filling up the Treasury general account, and so you're going to have some liquidity drain. However, as we get beyond this, I think if these cross currents, as we get to July, appear like they're kind of resolving in the way I just described, where services are going to stay strong, uh, and there's a reason for it. It's not just it's not a matter of timing. There's a reason it's strong then I think even if I were in the FOMC when I got to the July meeting and the September meeting, I'd be starting to think we're going to have to do more. And I and I, I don't think it's a surprise that they're thinking that they're going to have to do more. And do you have a sense of where rates might peak? I would put it this way. Listen, a year ago, we had a bunch of work to do and Fed was way behind the curve. And, and obviously, as you said, I felt like Fed should have gotten started much earlier, stopped the bond buying earlier. But now as we sit here today, I think the, the debate is between zero and let's say three moves. Do, do I know or do I need to know where it's going to come out in that range? I don't. But I think it wouldn't shock me that we've got at least a couple of more moves at the Fed. And if this continues, they may feel the need to do a little bit more. The danger, which I've talked to you about before, you, you want to be very deliberate, and I would say, take your time here. And the reason for that is what you don't want to do 
is raise rates high enough that something else breaks. I think we had the small regional bank. That was a breakage. Uh, unfortunately, associated with supervisory lapse, honestly, regulatory lapse, but it happened. You might have other things break. And what you don't want to do is be in a position at the Fed that you can't sustain rates at this level and have to turn and and uh, make cuts in order to deal with some breakage. Uh, I think that the length of time you're at this level, in my opinion, at this stage, will matter more than whether the terminal rate is exactly you know, five and a quarter, five and a half, or something more than that. I, I think people should expect, though, and the Fed is, and I think should be prepared, and I would be prepared, rates are going to have to stay at this level than longer than is probably reflected in the yield curve. That was exactly my next question, which is, you know, what is your sense of this higher for longer stance? We had a very interesting interview with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic last week, and it was fascinating because he's one of the more dovish voices on the committee. And in fact, he actually thinks that he you know, he might favor a pause under current circumstances, but he also foresees rates staying at current levels until the end of 2024. So very different from the market's view. In my opinion, and I agree with, with that point of view, I think the duration at this point is just as important as the terminal level. Uh, and, and so there are people that may be making economic decisions right now thinking, oh, the Fed's going to be cutting in six to 12 months. And so we can get more aggressive with X, Y, or Z. And, and I think that would be a mistake. And I think communicating consistently that rates are going to stay higher for longer is just as important as whether the terminal rate is you know, X, Y, or Z. So looking at the situation globally, it's pretty fascinating to see how many central banks have paused only to resume hikes, right? You had the RBA do that, the Bank of Canada... The Bank of England just surprised with a larger than expected 50 basis point hike last week. What does that the global nature of the trend tell you about whether we've entered a new inflation regime and you know how much of it is country specific and how much is just kind of a post-pandemic shift? Some of it is country specific and will play out as country specific. Some of it is what the Fed does and what the US economy does is has a big impact on the world. And we have a different world today than we had two or three years ago, which to go back to the fall, September of 2020, which is why I was not in favor of making a current commitment in the guidance to future actions. Globalization has now become, for example, deglobalization. Won't stay this way forever, but for the time being, a lot of the disinflationary forces in the world in the past were... Um, uh, we're due to globalization. There's sand in the gears right now of globalization. The energy transition around the world is going to take longer, I think, than the UN has planned for in their plan or countries. And what does that mean? Countries now are finding that they have higher energy prices, although there's a little bit moderation recently. They're burning more coal around the world now than they have for years. And Wind, solar, and these alternatives are expensive. And so as we make this transition, we need lots of new infrastructure around the world. And there's lots of demand for lithium and other natural resources and chips. And it's expensive. And in the meantime, the price of energy is higher than it was. 
And again, low to moderate income families, for example, in the United States, there's 50 million families that make $50,000 a year or less. But every country around the world's got this group that is struggling to make ends meet, works heavily in the service sector, needs higher wages. And so we've got some different dynamics structurally in the world. And I think the world is, is being challenged to adjust to them. Now, back to the U.S. context, what what do you gauge as the impact of the March banking turmoil? What's How is that percolating through the economy today? And how much tightening are we seeing from that? We're now in the quiet phase of the turmoil. The crisis, I said a couple of months ago, is in the second or third inning. I still think that, except we're in a different phase. There are the, the banks that the asset liability mismatch wiped out their net worth, those banks have been taken over. There are a couple of banks still that are teetering. And I don't, I don't, in a public forum, I don't want to mention who they are, but there's a couple teetering. I don't want to make it worse for them. Uh, banks have less capital today than we thought they did three months ago. And their deposits now cost, you pick it, 250 basis points more than they did three months ago. And every time the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, their deposit costs go up more. Net interest margins are getting squeezed. Banks are trying to manage now their loan to deposit ratio, shrinking their loan book, or at least being very disciplined about who they're lending to. And so it's harder for a small mid-sized business to get a loan. That is happening now. That's not something that's going to happen. It is happening. Um, And I think when you see bank earnings over the next couple of quarters, You'll see more what I'm talking about. I'd be surprised if bank earnings are not, for the small mid-sized banks, that is, I'd be surprised if they're not getting squeezed. It's harder for small mid-sized businesses to get a loan. And then the question is, what's the credit cycle going to look like? Are we going to have a severe credit cycle? We know, obviously, there's challenges in real estate, depending on the sector, that is. And I think banks are very sensitive to the idea that if they have earnings issues and their depositors see those earnings challenges, they may lose more deposits. So not only the deposits they're keeping are more expensive, but they're also on the margin fearful of losing deposits. So it is a very tough operating environment if you're a small mid-sized bank. And and remember, 4,150 banks in the United States, there's only 35 let's say, that have assets over $100 billion. So in that regard, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, those were not small banks. Those were huge banks in the context of the U.S. banking system. They each had over $200 billion. Everybody, the 4,000 plus banks that are quote unquote smaller, it is a very tough offering environment. And I don't need a bank CEO does not tell me the same thing they are struggling to get through this. And the only solution that I can think of that would help, and I think would be a good idea for the FDIC, which has already floated it, is to raise the FDI insurance limit for business accounts, not for savings accounts, but for business transaction accounts, and allow these small mid-sized banks to compete then on service and, and other factors and put them on a level playing field. And I think it would help banks through this country to help small mid-sized business. Now, last comment. Some people say, well, I thought we wanted a tighten credit. I thought this is what the Fed wanted. It does, but not like this, in that if and when we do have a downturn, 
unless you want to pass more fiscal stimulus already or get even more leverage at the federal government level, we're going to need small, mid-sized banks and small, mid-sized businesses to help lead the climb out of that downturn. And right now, you've heard me say we're doing damage to that muscle. Those sectors are getting squeezed, I would argue, by these rate increases and to some extent by fiscal spending, which is completely insensitive or heavily insensitive to the Fed funds rate. These projects go forward. <laughs> the Fed funds rate was 100 or 200 basis points higher or not. This ARPA money gets spent. These battery plants get built and they're relatively insensitive Unlike the private sector, it's relatively insensitive to the cost of capital. Private sector on the end, and these banks and their clients are super sensitive to the cost of capital. And that's why we're seeing this bifurcation in our economy. You mentioned the possibility that something else would break, especially if the Fed hikes further. What might that something else be? And is there a chance that something else breaks, even just because of a higher for longer scenario that banks are kind of unprepared for, if their models are pricing in rate cuts? Well, I actually, most bankers I talk to are prepared. They're prepared higher for longer. They're, they've adjusted mentally and their boards, and their teams have adjusted. This is a tough operating environment. We're going to be in this for an extended period of time. And they're adjusting it in that, in their loan activities, which is the primary place. And they're where they were reluctant before to raise their deposit rates. They're not, they're not even fooling around with that now. They're aggressive. Because they realize unless they're aggressive in raising their what they pay depositors, they're going to lose the account. And it could happen like that, and they can't afford that. Uh, so what could break? I think if I were at the Fed, I, I might well decide that more Fed funds increases are necessary. But in doing it, why I'm sensitive to it and why I would take every bit of this next month between now and the next meeting to assess the cross currents, you will higher Fed funds rate will squeeze these banks more. It will squeeze small, mid-sized businesses more. It will squeeze any sector of the economy that is very sensitive to interest rates. Uh, real estate sector, commercial real estate, uh, obviously, is an example. Is that the end of the world? How much is too much? Uh, I think you just got to be aware you're doing damage to the real economy. Government projects and building battery plants and creating sustainability is, I think, and creating more chip capacity, I think in the long run is a good thing for the country and it's a laudable goal. But in the short run, it may have the effect of squeezing out the real economy that operates based on economics and does, does a project or makes a hire based on profitability and economics. And I think you got to just be mindful of that. There's there's a concern I have about how much of that you want to do. This is why I've also said, although I don't think this is going to happen, I would love to see more of a whole of government approach to fighting inflation, which is if the Fed is the only tool we have to fight inflation, you're going to have a much higher Fed funds rate than is healthy for small businesses, banks, et cetera, other sectors you'll squeeze out some of these capital-sensitive sectors and private sector uh, in favor of government projects. I, I would love to see some time extension. If ARPA money has to be obligated by 24 and spent by 25, I haven't met any local official who would not welcome extending that, the spending part of this till 27. Because a lot of local officials privately tell me, we are struggling 
to figure out how to spend this money. Uh, I'm worried you're going to see on the margin, marginal projects and other things if you if you have these hard deadlines. And even on the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act, is there any wisdom in spreading these projects and leaving more dry powder for the time when we do have a downturn? And then you don't have to have pass new legislation, just you'll have these programs available. I'm not optimistic that those conversations will happen, but I think they might be useful. And I think it'll means that the Fed funds rate might not have to get as high as it would otherwise. And that's what I mean by a whole of government approach. I wonder what your take is on the whole long and variable lags debate over monetary policy. It's, it's a term that comes up a lot, but with very little precision. And uh, I just wonder whether the bulk of the effects in your view of the tightening that we saw over the past year and change have already been felt or whether there's still a whole lot of restrictiveness to come from the, that tightening. I'm a believer in the long variable lags. Some of the clearly being at five to five and a quarter is having an effect now. There's no doubt. You know, cap rates have changed. I talked about bank deposits, net interest margins. But having this go on, which I think it's likely to for another six to 12 months, you will start to see some sectors change their behavior further because of the realization that this is going on for longer. And I can think of a number of conversations I've had with businesses around the country where I think the realization that this will go on longer and the experience of going through that, I think, is going to cause them to, to rethink strategically some of the actions they may want to take. And that's across the board, uh, whether they want to remain independent, do they want to hire, do they want to do some of the expansion they have as their strategic plans are going to change. And, and I think we're entering that phase here where you'll start to see more of that in this next six to nine months. So so there is a lag and I can see on the ground and behavior is why there's a lag. And one last question. What is your take on the chances of a soft landing at this point? It's, it's been talked about for a long time. So far, so good. You know, the recession predictions have proven incorrect thus far, but it does seem like it would be a major historical anomaly to have this level of tightening and not have some kind of significant downturn. So every time that I'm aware of in our history where we've had this kind of tightening, it's usually because the economy was booming. Fiscal authorities were very aware that the economy was booming. And so we're not looking to add fuel to the fire. This is one of those cases, which uh, I think is very unusual, that the economy was off the chart strong. Nominal GDP growth in 21 was 12%. Historic, it was 8 or 9% in 22. It's probably running right now. If you take inflation plus real, maybe we're at 6 7%. I've said before we need to get down to 4 to have a chance to meet an inflation goal of even 3 4, 4% nominal. So back to your the soft landing. If you told me that we've got this kind of fiscal spending, spread across the United States in capital projects with multipliers. In other words, the dollars from the government are then added to other money that these are very potent in stimulating demand for workers. Materials, yes, workers for sure. I would tell you, I think the surprise, if there's a surprise, you're going to have in certain sectors of the economy, it's going to feel like a recession. Okay, there are. I think some of them I've talked to already feel that way, 
But I think the overall economy will be will surprise be surprisingly resilient, and you'll see it again show up in the service sector. And that means people going out to eat, staying in hotels, jumping on planes. I think you're going to see. Um, I think you're going to see the economy be surprisingly resilient. Um, and so the, the, the I don't know I don't know that there is a landing. There's going to be a downturn eventually. And the thing you got to be worried about is when the ARPA money dries up finally and you start to slow down on some of these other programs, you could at that point have a much more severe downturn. And then the question is, what's the muscle to drive us out of that? But is there going to be a downturn in 23 or even 24? I am much more uncertain about whether there's going to be a downturn. And all this spending tells me, and on the ground, when you go to communities and you go to states and you see the impact of these programs and you talk to the governor and you talk to the mayor, and you talk to the business leaders, and you, you and these are tight labor markets already, and these projects haven't even begun hiring, it tells me that, no, I think there's going to be more resiliency than we expect overall. But I think in certain sectors that are interest rate sensitive, you could see something that feels like a real downturn in those sectors while the overall economy remains resilient. Okay. That was former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak. All right. Thanks, Pedro. Good to talk to you.